This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm Shohini Chatterjee, a host of this channel and a PhD student in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University. And I'm very excited to be in conversation today with Dr. Ali Tay on her new book entitled The Political Economy of Stigma, HIV, Memoir, Medicine and Crip Positionalities, published by Ohio State University Press in 2021. Dr. Ali Day is Associate Professor at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the New Books Network, Ali. Thank you so much, Sohini. Thank you very much for being here. Um, your book is so powerfully written and, and so very engaging. But before getting into the book itself, I was wondering if you um, could begin by telling us what brought you to disability studies in general and studies of illness and disability memoir um, in particular. Yeah, I, that's sort of a big question. And how I answer that question is also sort of about how I'm going to understand my audience and sort of think about what do they want to hear. And I'm always, you know, I think all of us, when we answer questions that are autobiographical, we're constantly negotiating how much information to give (laughs) and under what context, right? Um, Which is basically um, what my book is about. But I will say that I think there's sort of two ways that I got into disability studies. So the first way um, would be as a chronically disabled, chronically ill person myself. So when I was in college and university, 18, 19 years old, I had um, some complex diagnoses that led to disablement. And as part of that, I started writing and I was um, an undergrad creative writing major. I had gone into um, my creative writing program thinking I was a poet. And then the only poet um, who advised people was an older white guy. And when I wrote poetry, he said, oh, well, this doesn't this isn't really a poem. This doesn't sound like a poem. And he would call like kind of constantly tell me like, oh, the subjects that you're writing about are sort of not poetry subjects. Right. And so that was very off-putting to me. So I I sort of moved into literary nonfiction writing and writing creative essays at the same time that I was was ill, right? And I was in and out of the hospital. So for my final thesis project, um, my senior year, I wrote, uh, for 
for better or worse, a, a book length memoir. And I started to circulate that memoir when I graduated. And I had, I was, I was in the final negotiations with a small feminist press in publishing that. And that was in the early 2000s. And um, they said to me, well, we just signed another person um, who's very similar to you. So we're not going to sign you. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, of course, I kept my eyes um, on, and this is right before the recession. So then sort of publishing shut down for a little bit, or at least the small presses did. And I kept my eye out for what book that would be from this press. And what I realized when the, the books came out was that there was a, a woman who was white, cisgendered millennial. Um, with a similar but not the same condition as me who had written a memoir. And I, I thought to myself, well, this isn't the same story, but it's the same enough that a press wouldn't want to publish too, right? And so I really started to think about the politics of publishing in relation to illness and illness narratives. At the same time that that was happening, um, I was also sort of doing um, HIV activism work. And one of the reasons for that was because when I was ill, um, some of the folks that were most helpful to me in terms of thinking about how to negotiate with doctors were older um, queer men who were living with HIV, right? So I was part of this small queer community in a rural area. So those were the people um, that that were sort of mentors in this way in terms of negotiating with medicine, right? So I really felt that doing HIV activism work was, was about being a participant in my own community, even though I was not somebody living with HIV. And then basically, <laughs> as I started to sort of think about, do I want to go to grad school? Um, what can I do with a gender studies master's degree and PhD? And, and sort of thinking about what my interests were, I really realized that my interest in how we tell stories was not just sort of a superficial artistic interest, which sort of when you're doing a BFA in creative writing, you sort of are thinking always about aesthetics. Um, but but that it actually had um, a relationship to how we access treatment and how uh, medical providers are hearing our stories and then deciding what kind of care we need. So I realized that actually it had a, a stronger political implication. And so that's what kind of led me into the feminist studies world. And through that, I then found disability studies. I realized that there was some smart work going on in disability studies, um, but that um, I had some sort of unique things to say in relation to what was happening in disability studies. So that's sort of how I got um, into the field as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, this could be another big question, but I'm also really curious about this. Um, your book is about HIV memoirs written by women. Um, and I'm... And, and I would really like to know what sets these memoirs apart from other memoirs by those living with chronic illnesses and disabilities, and, and what made you focus on HIV memoirs written by women, specifically for this book? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think, you know, I started to think about and write about HIV and HIV representation early in my master's program. And what I realized is that there were very few um, book-length memoirs written by women in the United States living with HIV, and that the few memoirs that we had um, at the time were really small presses, were hard to find, right? Um, they were maybe out of print, and so I started to think about the politics of that, and then, you know, um, <laughs> you're a PhD candidate, so you sort of know how this is, but you're sort of thinking about, okay, how how can I write something new for a seminar 
paper, right, for this class that I'm doing. I was like, well, nobody has written yet about HIV memoirs written by women in the United States. So I knew that talking about these memoirs would be one way that I could highlight the work of folks that I think were not being heard, right? Because these were sometimes out of press memoirs. They certainly weren't getting discussed in academic settings in my um, gender studies classes or disability studies classes. So, um, and sometimes they were even sort of belittled as sort of quote unquote, not good writing, right? They weren't literary enough, which of course also with that creative writing background sort of struck me as worth analyzing and thinking about what we thought of as, you know, literary enough to, to include in a classroom. So, um, because I knew that no one was writing academically about these book length memoirs, um, I sort of started tackling that. And then as I was tackling that project and sort of thinking about what's been written, sort of following, um, new publishings, publications that were coming out, um, and, you know, a couple of things happened. So one was when I started the project, African-American women were the fastest growing HIV positive population. And that to me was really fascinating as a gender studies scholar, somebody interested in equity um, and interested in sort of um, broad public health, um, social justice um, activism. But then that changed, that shifted during the course of, of my working on this project. And, and they, we had some really interesting and good interventions that slowed the rise of that um, population acquiring HIV. However, they were still disproportionately represented. And yet in the statistics, but we weren't sort of talking about their own self-representations, particularly in sort of book length memoirs. So um, as I was sort of reading these things, I thought to myself, well, I I'm not somebody living with HIV. I don't have that perspective. And from what I had read, and I had read a lot by this point in people thinking about disability life writing, is that we would say all of these, we would make all these claims about the reception of life writing. And we would say, oh, well, this is a triumphant narrative. And that's, that's very simplistic um, to understand it as a triumphant narrative. And, um, you know, and, and thus, and, you know, simplistic <laughs> kind of in academia always means, um, you know, a negative thing, right? Um, so I started to sort of think about, well, I would actually really want to know what somebody living with HIV thinks about these memoirs, right? Do they relate to them? Uh, do they feel realistic? Do they feel like they're some sort of, um, you know, top 1% kind of representation? Um, are they relevant to them today? Because some of the memoirs that I write about are, are quite old, um, you know, 25 years old, where medication is just so different and um, prognosis is so different for women with HIV. So um, that's really where the project started was um, when I took on this field research approach. And that's when things sort of blew up and expanded um, into the, the bigger project that I thought initially would be just kind of a maybe a short paper or just part of a larger investigation about HIV. Um, and it really became a representation, uh, investigation of HIV representation and then larger posing larger questions about why this matters in relation to medical care providers. Mm -hmm. It's such an important project. I'm, I'm glad that you invested so much of your intellectual and emotional, um, energy into it. Um, you also led several reading group discussions on HIV memoirs with women living with HIV as well as with AIDS service workers and, and bring out in your book the distinction between their responses to these memoirs, and you do so through an intersectional lens. Um, could you speak a little bit about how this distinction helps us understand the commodification of disability 
and the political economy of stigma? Yeah, I think I can a little bit. Um, I'm not sure how how sort of pithy and concise I can be about it. But what I will say is that when I did my first reading group with women living with HIV, um, I had three people that really invested um, their time with me in terms of reading these memoirs. And we met every week for a year, um, basically, um, to read different memoirs together. And we read both HIV memoirs and other... Um, sort of commonly read in a disability studies classroom memoir. So other um, about folks with other kinds of disabilities and their experience with that. So um, I learned a ton from those three women that I worked with in that first reading group. So one of the things that I learned was how to be um, an observer and a facilitator as opposed to um a teacher, right? Because I really was not looking um, to teach them anything. I was looking to learn with them, right? And so uh, that meant having them lead the discussions, right? And telling me what they were thinking about the book. So what I would do at the beginning of every session together, um, after, you know, I sort of laid out the brownies and the coffee and everyone got, you know, a plate full of treats and goodies was um, sort of say, okay, so where are we in this book? Can, can someone sort of summarize for me what's going on so far in the book? And I was always surprised um, to hear how people summarize, right? Because what resonates for one person in a book may be um, something different for someone else. So for instance, um, there's one memoir um, that we read together um, by Catherine Wyatt Morley. And Catherine Wyatt Morley is to my knowledge, the first woman living with HIV who wrote a book-length memoir and published it. And so this is the uh, mid-90s that the book comes out. And um, within that memoir, she spends a lot of time talking about um, her work at an assembly plant and how she um, was no longer able to do that work as a result of sort of complicating um, HIV-related conditions. Um, And she also talks about... um, uh, her husband's uh, worsening illness, and she talks about um, creating a basically a women's group for for women living with HIV in Tennessee, where she was living. And when I asked women to summarize, you know, what was going on in the story for them, they often focused a lot on the husband, right, on the relationship with the husband, and how she navigated that relationship, which is not an insignificant part of the book. But for me, as a queer white reader, um, I wasn't as focused on that relationship with her husband, right? And so I think that their reading of that relationship completely and totally shaped the kinds of conversations that we had um, about things like disclosure. So that the reason why Catherine White Morley contracted HIV in terms of what she tells us is because her husband had had an affair, right? So there was all this sort of conversation about disclosure in relation to um, romantic and sexual relationships. Um, there was less, there was also interest in the overlapping of like um, the workplace discrimination that she experienced because many of the women um, in that group, I think all three of the women that stuck with the group long-term had experienced workplace discrimination. So they could relate to that very, very specifically. Less interesting to them um, when they did summary was um, sort of the, the development of a women's support group and sort of the gender-based analysis that she provides her readers. For whatever reason, the women that I was working with were not so interested in that sort of part of 
the story that she tells. And maybe because they are living in a time where um, their HIV is is much more easily recognized. Their symptoms are more recognized, right? Because in the early 90s, we were we had just begun to include female specific criteria within HIV diagnosis. So, um, and we really barely had any support groups, let alone support groups that that would speak to women, right? And um, for the 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 folks in in my reading group, that was a totally different experience for them. So, but then. Um, a couple years later, I was able to do a similar reading group with AIDS service workers. So we weren't in the same city. It was a totally different city. Um, so there was no way that they would sort of know members of the first group. And we all, I had them choose from a same list of books to read that the first group had, had chosen from. And they also chose to read um, Wyatt Morley's memoir. And <laughs> the first reading group, the women with, living with HIV, they loved Wyatt Morley's memoir. So even when we finished it and, you know, we had moved on several times, um, they would always refer back to Catherine. They always called her by her first name, Catherine this and Catherine that. And they, they Googled her and they looked her up and like, they wanted to see what she was doing and things like that. So she was very much present in all of our group discussions. For the folks in the aid service worker reading group, it was almost, uh, I think, full on the least liked memoir of everything that we read together. And I was a little bit surprised because it had gone over so well with the first group, right? Um, and so a couple of folks um, who were queer identified thought that she was too into God, that she talked about God too much, right? Now that the God conversation, she does bring up in the book, right? She, she is a rel- Christian religious person, but my first reading group didn't even really think about that, Um consciously, right? That wasn't part of the conversation that they had. So the the group of AIDS service workers, some of whom were queer, that was one of the things that was particularly off-putting. But overall, they thought that the book seemed too old, that it wasn't relevant anymore, because when she talked about something like the kind of medication that she was on, that was all null, right? That it wasn't useful because that medication is no longer used, right? So if she's talking about AZT, they're like, that's just historical, but it's not relevant. Um, And they felt that they did not care for the way she wrote the memoir was in sort of a, the style of a journal, with dates and sort of like almost like she's she's writing a journal um, to leave for her children. And they also they didn't like that. They felt that it, it seemed too much like it was forcing a kind of intimacy that they didn't really buy into. Right. Um, and so here I was, I'm, I'm sort of doing these two reading groups. I'm trans- doing all my own transcriptions. And I'm like, this is really surprising to me that a book that was by far the most liked book in one group is the least liked book in another group. And certainly not all of the things that we read in each group are sort of that dichotomously um, opposed to one one another in terms of the two groups. I mean, there was overlap in reception, but to think about that really had me thinking about, well, why, what in our lives is affecting how we are reading this? And so what I started to think about is exactly this idea of the political economy of stigma. (laughs) That's just a long way (laughs) to get to like sort of why I started thinking about the political economy of stigma, which is that, you know, we train medical providers. So in the AIDS service worker reading group, we had everyone from a psychiatric nurse practitioner to um, people who did the HIV testing to social workers, right? So a lot of different folks with different trainings, but they're all sort of taught to think in terms of diagnosis and um, to think in terms of like the individual as opposed to the social and structural issues. And 
in thinking in terms of the individual and not the social and structural, what they sort of did was um, sort of think one like offhandedly about, well, that was just her problem, right? That was just Catherine's problem that she had, right? It wasn't something that was, um, had a larger significant interest. And therefore, if that problem is resolved for her, it's no longer important that we read about it, right? Or if it doesn't have a triumphant ending, (laughs) that it wasn't worth reading about. And so I started to think about, well, why we always look for certain kinds of narratives within medicine um, and how how the kinds of illnesses that we look for within medicine are sort of overly um, leaning towards like the, the independent story, the triumphant story, because that holds up sort of the, the, the goal of medicine, right? Which is to treat the individual, to cure if we can cure, right? Or to make somebody um, with a, a really either wonderful ending or somebody that is like a lesson that we can pity, right? And that that actually upholds the medical industrial complex in really significant ways. And even if we don't consciously think we're rooted in that model, even by um, reading and sort of um, diagnosing a character as we're, we're going through, right? Or saying, oh, this is because she just wanted to, to be loved or something like that. Um, by it detracts from sort of thinking about the social and cultural issues um, and then sort of leads to a, a further sort of circulation of that, of that narrative to, to uphold sort of the medical industrial complex goals. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. It does. Um, you write at length about how class emerged as a prominent marker of difference in your reading group discussions as, as working class women living with HIV engaged with memoirs written by women with class privilege, having a similar zero status. What do you think this says about health and equity, differential access to care and, and classism ingrained in the health um, infrastructure? Well, I think in some ways it's a very American um, analysis in the sense of we have you know a, a pretty terrible healthcare system here in the United States. And at the time that I started um, and was working with the first reading group, we had... Um, not yet passed the Affordable Care Act, right? So we didn't even have, you know, quote unquote, Obamacare in place. So um, we were even further, um, we were even worse than we are now. Um, So I think some of it has to do with readings and interpretations of what one has access to in terms of healthcare. But I'll give you sort of one example that came up. So there's um, a memoir by Reagan Hoffman, and Reagan Hoffman um, had been an editor of Pause, which is a um, free circulated HIV magazine, news magazine um, that you can often pick up in like doctor's offices and aid service centers. And um, among sort of the women I worked with living with HIV, they knew of that magazine. They knew a bit about who Reagan Hoffman was. Um, and in, on the cover of her memoir, uh, it's just a photographic image of a thin uh Femme-looking person with long um, blonde hair, face totally obscured, on top of a horse, right? And the very first week, we were supposed to come in together and talk about this book. And remember, the women had chosen this as part of the list of books that they wanted to read, so it, in summary, had sounded interesting to them. Um, so the first week we came in to read this, one of my participants said. Um, something like, and I don't have the quote right in front of me, but something like, I couldn't get past her and her damn horse, right? So she hadn't read it. She hadn't picked it up. She hadn't been able to read it because it was so off-putting to think of this um, 
this woman who, who has the, the privilege to ride a horse for whatever that means, um, middle class or upper class status, um, would have anything in common with her as an African-American woman living in the Rust Belt. Right, who was um, on social security, trying to make um, her checks work, raising a family, those kinds of things. So that was immediately off-putting. We did make <laughs> progress on that book. Um, I'm not sure that everybody read the whole book altogether, but they they sort of found the ways that she bypassed some of her privilege, especially in the first half of the book, um, off-putting. Right, because they were just kind of like, this isn't you're not aware. You're not aware of like when you say, you know, I didn't have anywhere to go. So I went to go live in my friend's barn, right? You're not aware that that in and of itself is like a sort of form of privilege. Now in Hoffman's defense, I think in the second half of the book, she takes a more political analysis as she starts doing international HIV work, but not even everybody made it to the second half of the book because it was so difficult to relate to her in the first half of the book. Right. But interestingly, the AIDS service worker reading group loved the book. Like they thought it was the best one that we read about HIV. They thought um, her as an activist and an advocate was really important and clear. And they related to that. It was like sort of the most relatable book for them. And most of the people in that AIDS service worker group were white people, white cisgendered people, some queer, um, multiple generations. Um, we had um, a couple baby boomers and we had some millennials and, and some folks in between. Right. So, diverse in some ways, but um, not in other ways. And and sort of the class piece for them um, was not as relevant, right? Because it was, you know, just sort of be middle class and white middle class here in the United States is, is the default. It's the thing that's not worth talking about because it's the default privilege, right? So it didn't come up as an issue. Um, and I think <laughs> um, when she talks about medication and access to medication, um, I think, and, and access to doctors and doctors who were, um, and, and this, even, even this idea of being able to choose your doctor, to be able to shop around for your doctor was something that was, that's very hard to relate to for so many people in the United States who are on public assistance or on Medicare or Medicaid, um, or even just another like sort of insurance from their workplace that, um, you get, you know, sort of one option of somebody in town who, who, who can treat whatever condition that you're looking to be treated. So um, some of the privilege in terms of access to healthcare um, becomes really important and relevant um, when we start thinking about class. Mm -hmm. You also bring out racial dynamics of HIV-related stigma as they're revealed um, in these memoirs. Could you talk about the racialized um, political economy of stigma? Because I imagine the political economy of stigma is always already racialized. Yeah, I think that um, as I was doing the field research in this book, I think um, the scholars and thinkers working within Black feminist thought were the most influential for me and helped me understand um, the kind of material I was collecting in in the most um, interesting and important ways. And so one of the people I, I read was Carla Holloway, and she has this book um, where she talks about privacy. And this idea that privacy is actually part of racial privilege, right? It's also part of, and she doesn't say this so explicitly, but um, others since have, it's also part of um, ability privilege, right? Because if you think about it, if you're somebody who has a disability um, and you need 
public, what we call public assistance, right? Um, you have to go to a bureaucracy, right, at the state level here in the United States, and you have to prove that you need this by unveiling all sorts of things in your personal, physiological, mental, psychiatric life, right? And you need all sorts of documentation. And you have to do it over and over and over again. So for instance, I have a friend who's a chair user, and she's a permanent chair user. Um, and every couple of years, she has to go and prove that she's still a permanent chair user, right? And it's such... Um, not only, I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic and, and we can laugh about it and make jokes um, about how like sort of stupid the, the bureaucracy is, but it's also exhausting, right? It's exhausting to do that kind of labor of constantly having to prove yourself. And yet disabled people and people of color um, are, are sort of constantly in that position of having to prove that their needs are, you know, quote unquote, real, um, that they warrant attention and care um, without... Um, and they're, and they're also constantly sort of being asked to give more and more information. So another way that we sort of see this working, um, is sort of when, um, you know, sort of black women are overexposed to medicine, um, as subjects of medical interrogation, right? Even if we think of, um, the sort of now infamous because of Oprah and others, um, Hala cell story, right? Where we have women, um, who often remain nameless, but yet their physiological conditions are, um, known and overexposed, um, for the sake of quote unquote science or curiosity, right? We have a long history of that, um, you know, from Sarge Bartman, um, you know, sort of all the way up through um, our contemporary moment, right? And I think Black feminist scholars have written really beautifully and importantly about that. But one of the things that does is it helps, it makes medical practitioners in general feel entitled, I call this narrative entitlement, feel entitled to knowing um, the specifics about your story, even if it has nothing to do with what they're treating you for. So one of my participants in my HIV reading group, she tells the story and she just was telling us offhand, like we were checking in about each other's weeks, right? And she just like came in and was like, uh, you know, just kind of venting about this. But her, um, she went to go see the chiropractor and the chiropractor was sort of reading her chart and, and was like, oh, you have HIV. Um, and then he said, what's a nice girl like you doing with a disease like that? Right. And I talk about this in my book. And, um, you know, she's a woman in her fifties. So first of all, not a girl. Um, and she's a black woman, right? So that's a, that's sort of a, a slur or slang that de- disempowers black women, right. To call them girl. And then on top of that, like he's asking, um, for the sake of curiosity, um, and he's doing so before he even touches her body, right? Like, so he's standing there reading the chart and it's almost like he's withholding the treatment while she discloses um, something that has nothing to do with the kind of treatment that he would um, be giving her. And yet there's this way that he feels entitled to knowing that story, right? Because it wouldn't be an obvious story because she's supposedly a nice girl, right? Whatever that means, right? In terms of understanding HIV is connected to, to drug users or um, promiscuous people or sex workers or whatever the case might be. And he didn't see her in that light. And this happens a lot, right? I had sort of many, many examples of this kind of entitlement that sets the footing in such a place where you're in, you're meeting a doctor for the first time. And I'm, I mean, we're in a podcast, so you can't see my hands right now. Um, but they're side by side, right? Um, so you're meeting 
a doctor for the first time, and they're going to ask you sort of some of the usual questions that you get asked, right, about your behavior and your medical history. And you're going to say, oh, okay, and I also I have HIV. And then the immediate question becomes, oh, well, how did you get that? Right. As if like, you know, we don't go around asking people, how did you get the flu or how did you get? um, Well, I don't know, actually, about COVID. I mean, we don't frequently ask people, how did they get COVID, though? I think that's a little bit more um, politicized in some ways. But um, so there's always this sort of ask of like, well, will you tell me? And knowing that because HIV is sexually transmitted or it's transmitted through fluids, bodily fluids um, that involve intimacy, because of that, they're they're automatically asking a question about sexuality that really starts to sort of feel um, voyeuristic in some ways, right? And so this narrative entitlement in relation to HIV is absolutely um, a racialized entitlement, a gendered entitlement, and of course, an ableist entitlement. Mm-hmm. In, in chapter three of your book, you write about the diagnostic reading practices of AIDS service workers, um, then them wanting a fair representation of the medical system, they deny medical mismanagement and systemic injustice is also um, obscured um, as discourses of responsibility and, and respectability interfere in how the memoirs are, are read and discussed. Um, would you like to expand on how this kind of responsabilization sustains the political economy of stigma and ableism? <laughs> yeah, I think... Um... You know, there are so many other folks that have written um, about how medical care has moved into this realm of like personal responsibility, whether it's sort of what you choose to eat or or how much you choose to exercise or uh, who you choose to become exposed to, right, in relation to COVID um, and wearing a mask, right? And so it all becomes about personal responsibility, which does obscure sort of the political and cultural and social um regimes, right, that have created differential exposure to vulnerability, right? So um, we've, I mean, people have talked about this ad litem, but, um, you know, what you eat has a lot more to do than just making a choice, Um, right? It's about, do you have a grocery store in your neighborhood? Can you get to a grocery store? Can you, does that grocery store have fresh fruit and vegetables? Do you know, if you have fresh fruit and vegetables, do you know how to cook them? Do you have a, do you have a sort of cultural heritage around cooking those vegetables? Um, You know, and like, so, so people have sort of talked about this idea of personal responsibility obscuring larger social and cultural and structural injustices. And I think that that happens in relation to... Um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sort of people living with HIV or people living with other kinds of chronic conditions. Because the chronic condition is the one that 
comes and goes. It has waves, right? You you may feel, you may have like a flare up, right? For a month and then nothing for a couple of months. And then, and, and then it starts to become about questioning like, well, how real is that? Are you just, is that just a convenient flare up for you to get out of X, Y, and Z with your job, right? So it starts to be calls for proof in terms of, um, something like a chronic illness, particularly if it's invisible, if it's an invisible chronic illness. Um, And part of that sort of asking for proof all the time is also about sort of, well, even if it's true, maybe you did something, right? Maybe you didn't take care of yourself well enough. Maybe you missed too many yoga classes and that's why um, your fibromyalgia flared up, right? Or whatever the case might be. And it, it works in such a way so that we don't have to change anything structurally about what we think of as work and workplace accommodations, right? If we just blame somebody for not taking care of themselves well enough, we can still ask our workers to work an eight-hour or 10-hour day without um, changing the conditions of which of capitalism that overfocus on productivity, right? And being able to work a particular amount of hours to be considered um you know, a productive citizen in some way. I think I got off track with the question, though. Oh, no, it's, I think it perfectly answers the question. Um, uh, I would like to circle back to narrative entitlement of the medical establishment. Um, you, you have talked about this a little bit um, in, in terms of um, the establishment's demands of disclosure, even though tre- treatment often does not hinge on hinge on such disclosure, yet the uh, neoliberal medical system continues to view privacy as a privilege, as you put it um, in your book. In what ways do you think this perpetuates marginalization of variously oppressed people living with disabilities and trying to navigate medical markets and having to negotiate their own boundaries with those establishments, not only in terms of race, uh, which you've talked about at length, but also about, um, also in terms of um, sexual identity, class, um, and, and other vilified identities. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> the first thing that just comes to mind is it's exhausting. It's exhausting to have to constantly navigate um, through systems of narrative entitlement, right? To be constantly told that you have to tell your story and tell it in a particular way in order for it to be heard in a particular way for you to get the kind of treatment that you know you need, right? Or in order to get a, a, a treatment um, possibility, right? So sometimes it's it's even about like just getting a diagnosis in the first place um, so that you can access something like um, a treatment for a chronic illness. So a medical treatment for a chronic illness. So I think the thing about narrative entitlement is that it one thing that I think happens is that it makes folks who are um, more apt to be asked right for their narratives and for their background um, less likely to go to the doctor right less likely to, to engage with those medical systems because they're, they know that they're gonna lose half a day if not just from waiting around in the doctor's office right um, and having sort of their time totally um, you know, disrespected in that way, but also in terms of um, the emotional work that it takes to, you know, have to constantly disclose um, all of the details about a condition, right? So I know so many um, queer folks um, who are HIV negative or HIV positive who who don't want to go see the doctor or don't want to um, investigate finding a new doctor because they know that 
the the exhaustion of the process. We also know that um, it it definitely will affect um, preventative care, right? Being able to just see a primary care physician. Um, it also can affect sort of people not going into like um, emergency rooms and things like that, like where they'll have um, interactions of narrative entitlement and they know they're never going to see this person again, right? Your emergency care room doctor or the, the nurses that are there, right? You're not, it's designed so that you won't see them again. And yet there's a sort of constant ask for, for details, um, about your life. And I think that's also one of the things that's happening is that it moves outside the medical world, right? So that somebody who experiences this kind of narrative entitlement within the medical system is also sort of experiencing that in other places, right? So we know in the United States, when we pass the um, ADA in 1990, you know, you're not supposed to ask in a job interview about um, whether or not somebody is disabled or what their disability is, etc. Um, but we also know that there are ways in which um, interviewers um, do ask, right? Ask around that kind of question. And, and because this, this kind of narrative entitlement has sort of spilled over um, into other places. So whether it's the workplace, right? Oh, you, you have that accommodation and maybe your coworker doesn't ask you specifically why you have an accommodation for flex time during the week. Um, but they're going to be jealous of that. Right. And you're going to feel, have to feel like, Oh, okay. I should just tell them the truth so that they are not, um, holding some sort of grudge against me for not working hard enough or something like that. Right. So it, it comes out in all sorts of other places in terms of um, needing to constantly provide these kinds of explanations. Mm-hmm. Um, the chapter on narrative medicine, especially a critique of um, narrative medicine and medical humanities is one of the most complex chapters in the book um, where you write that narrative medicine often individualizes disabilities obscuring the structural violence that accompanies the lives of disabled people. Um, For our audience, would you like to expand on the interpretive uh, processes adopted by narrative medicine, which sustain the political economy of stigma and uh, neoliberalization of the medical industry, um, bolstering the medical um, industrial complex? Yeah, sure. This is this is actually the chapter in the editing process that I got the most pushback about um, in terms of needing to make sure um, I was crystal clear about what my critiques were, um, crystal clear about the ethics and method for coming for coming to these critiques. Right. Um, and I think it, it will be <laughs> the chapter where I get in the most trouble, I think, for for writing this way um, or, or for sort of thinking about narrative medicine. And the, the first being because I believe that narrative medicine brands itself as the social justice oriented medical practice, right? They are trying to counter the problem of 10 minute office visits, the problem of um, doctors sort of not listening well to their clients, um, the problems of people sort of not feeling heard by their doctors. And, and, and if we just listen better, then our medical interactions will be better, right? That's sort of a premise um, of narrative medicine. Um, and that if you just ask enough questions, you will somehow find a capital T truth in sort of your work with a client. And in sort of making these kinds of proposals, there's a total like sort of obscuration of like, well, why wouldn't somebody, why would somebody not want to provide you that background information? Like maybe they have a good reason for only telling you X, Y, and Z. Um, 
so there's all sorts of sort of problems about presumptions of powerlessness, right, or naivete among um, sort of patient clients, right, that patient clients, um, they're just not telling you things because they're too naive to know that that would be important, right? Whereas my perspective is, um, and and particularly from working with the women in my HIV reading group, was that um, that negotiation of what I tell you is exceptionally sophisticated and I know exactly what I'm doing and it's not naivete. It's, it's me claiming some of my privacy, right? It's me reading the power dynamics and claiming my privacy. So the ways that I investigated narrative medicine were a couple of different things. So I read um, some of the quote unquote canonical works of narrative medicine. So in particular, Rita Sharon's narrative medicine book, called Narrative Medicine from 2008. I also read ways that it was being interpreted um, in sort of an international publication world. Um, And then I also attended a Narrative Medicine weekend workshop. So that workshop is designed, it's probably the most common way that Narrative Medicine circulates as a pedagogy and that it's like you get your continuing education credits as a medical practitioner by attending these one-off workshops that are like sort of three-day workshops. Um, and you go to um, the NYU campus and you um, get to hear a keynote from Rita Sharon herself on the first night. And then you get to hear lots of other people that teach in the program. And then you sort of do workshops during the day. And my experience, um, I went I have to say, I really did try to go in with an open mind. I had interviewed the program director and he was a really nice guy. And I thought, okay, they're going to be totally open to sort of thinking with me about um, how narrative medicine can be an ally of disability studies, right? So that's that's how I approached it. Um, And one of the, the big things that Rita Sharon talks about is that we need to practice close reading, Right. And, and so she has sort of this she has an MD degree and she has a PhD in English literature. And so she's like, you know, we have to take what we learn um, in English literature and then and and how we learn to read and do close reading with with, quote unquote, good authors. Right. So so sort of this thinking about the English literature canon. Right. And then take that and then use those skills with our clients. So practice close listening with our clients. So we'll practice close reading um, of this these quote unquote great pieces of literature. And then we'll take that practice and. We will um, listen to our clients better, and then we will do our own writing, right? And, and implicit in that is that you will then have stories as a medical doctor that you can now tell. And so almost everybody that I was in workshop with said their first reason for taking the workshop was to work on their own writing, right? So there was this sort of idea that this was a fun way to use some of the knowledge that they had gained about individuals that they care for, or quote-unquote care for, and then circulate that through a kind of artistic practice, right? And so there's a sort of focus on um, thinking about aesthetics in some ways, right? So I'm all the way back now um, to where I was when I was doing my um, BFA degree. Um, And there's sort of, when, when you sort of bring up questions of ableism within the framework, like it became very clear to me by the middle of the second day that I was sort of um, experiencing what it's like to be the, the feminist killjoy, right? Um, that that I was there disrupt when I, when I questioned, um, for instance, somebody's, um, when they were told to sort of tell a story of trauma, right. For the whole room. And their story of trauma was, um, sort of was, was telling, talking about, um, how they had to care for a disabled sibling. And I questioned about this idea that that would be trauma in the first place. Um, you know, I was, I was sort of 
reprimanded, right? Constantly. I was sort of constantly reprimanded if I said anything that had to do with social justice. And at one point, one of the workshop um, like facilitators, who is a regular teacher in that program, said to me, well, this workshop may not be socially justice or something like this workshop may not be socially justice oriented enough for you, but for everybody else, it's just fine. Right. And it was just this kind of like complete shut, shutting down and gaslighting um, within that workshop experience. At the same time, you know, in the keynotes, Rita Sharon talked about narrative medicine as a brand. So not as an intellectual practice, but as a brand. She talked about that. She used that language of it as a brand um, about how they are going to essentially claim this practice of close reading as the the um, cornerstone of the brand, right? As if you can like um, sort of copyright this idea of close reading. Um, and that the goal is to get as much information out of your clients as possible, right? Because that information will um, ultimately make you a better carer or doctor or practitioner. Um, but it always sort of came back to um, how are you writing about it and how are you keeping this, what she calls a parallel chart. Um, and so I, I sort of started thinking about that a lot. And then as I was sort of writing about this, and um, I don't I don't think that people who practice native medicine are, are sort of garbage people, right? I But I do think that, that there is a way that the brand frames itself as being a cure for the problems of medicine that it absolutely cannot be. And not only is it not a cure, but it's actually doing more harm. And it's doing more harm by playing into this idea that you as a client patient don't deserve privacy, that you as a client patient are too naive to know um, what you should and shouldn't say to a doctor. And we're just going to ask you all of the questions so that we get the information that we need because you couldn't possibly know the kinds of information that we need, right? And so it just sort of perpetuates this idea. And the other thing that's so, so hard about this is that it's doing nothing to actually transform the problem of American medicine. So the problem of the 10-minute visit has not been solved, even though Rita Sharon sort of opens up with that in her 2008 book, because the only thing that I worry that will happen is it brings well, this is already happening. It brings narrative expertise into and under an umbrella of the medical model um, in medical practice, and then it creates just one more specialty, right? And so what I am worried about happening is that <laughs> you're going to, it's going to become a thing where you're like, oh, okay, I want to find a primary care physician who is trained in narrative medicine. And that specialty is going to be um, one more specialized medical practice that now gets um, queued under an insurance model to charge me more money, right? Without actually changing anything about the medical system that is so problematic in the first place. I also found your emphasis on differential reading to understand structures of power and resistance very important and, and very interesting. In what ways do you think differential reading can be transformative and empowering, especially for readers living with complex disabilities who are also structurally uh, marginalized in, in many ways? Yeah, well, what I would have to say is um, I really am building off of the work of Shayla Sandoval in this sort of idea of the differential. So um, which I don't think has been looked at or hadn't when I started writing, hadn't been there has been Suzanne Boast and a few others have sort of started thinking about um, Chicana feminists and relation to disability studies. But um, this idea that she has of differential um, consciousness that um, people from marginalized positions have a view of the world 
um, that is uh, informed by oppression. And that oppression and being informed, informed by that oppression gives you a very sophisticated understanding of power, right? And then you sort of take the understandings of power that you need as you need them um, to um, employ action, right? To, to take action in some way. And I started to think about this in relation to the kinds of ways that, um, in particular, the women in my HIV reading group were telling me about their negotiations with medical practitioners, right? And talking about um, the books that we were reading, right? And so the way that um, we had really interesting and complex conversations about um, this label of non-compliance. And so anyone who has interacted with the medical system um, at any length probably has been, has heard this term non-compliance. And those of us with um, chronically, um, like chronic conditions may have been labeled non-compliant. I know I have at various parts of their lives. And non-compliant is a label that is used by many medical practitioners without a narrative addendum, right? It's just non-compliant, meaning that you aren't following the directives of a doctor or a medical provider. And within the AIDS service industry here in the United States, um, as it's become increasingly professionalized, increasingly supported by government and state grants, and then um, large philanthropic institutions, um, they have to sort of... um, be very prescriptive with their clients about what their clients need to do to remain a client, right? So you have to take your medication every day. You have to come to this many follow-up um, social worker visits, right? You have to um, demonstrate that you are in drug rehab if you had been an addict, right? There are all these sort of things that you have to um, do in order to remain uh to, to, to continue to have access to, to life-saving medication, right? And if you don't do those things, you're labeled non-compliant. Well, one of my um, participants, her mom, so she was African-American, is African-American, and her mom had been a nurse um, in the South um, in the 60s, and she had been a, a nurse in a psych facility. And she grew up learning that you don't take what a doctor gives you, right? That you do your own reading, you um don't tell the doctor necessarily that you're not <laughs> going to take something that they're going to give you, but that you are going to, that doctors don't always have the the greatest um, motivation in mind for you, right? And you can, you can understand why an African-American woman working as a nurse in a psychiatric ward in the 1960s would have that perspective, right? If you understand anything about psych history or the Jim Crow South or anything at all about racism, right? So she learned and had and had these lessons through the 60s and the 70s of being very careful about any medical intervention, including pills that you take. And so when she was first given HIV meds, they weren't agreeing with her. Like she had like sort of gastro symptoms that were really sort of not um, amenable to, you know, having to go to work every day and having to raise a family. And so she picked and chose what she took for her medications, which was labeled as non-compliant. But what I want to suggest is actually that's just creative survival, right? That's just what it looks like when you um, are being thoughtful and reading the power structures around you um, to take care of yourself, right? And so I think all of these conversations um, that we have in medicine about non-compliance, they're usually written off as somebody just being not 
not a good listener, right? I always tell my four-year-old, you have to be a good listener when we're at the pool, right? It's like, it feels like that, right? It's like, you're just not being a good listener. And that is another way to sort of infantilize the medical subject, right? To say like, you are just too naive to do um, what we're telling you to do. And you really just need to um, do exactly what we say. And that of course has like class and gender implications as well as racialized implications, right? I think, um, that some people um, are being read as non-compliant more quickly than a white cisgendered heterosexual male-bodied person might be, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for this conversation and the nuance and, and complexity you brought to it. Um, I realize we are nearing the end of this episode, um, but before we part, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on? Yeah, so I'm sort of, my time is um, being, my research creative time is being split between two sort of things right now. So one of them is an HIV project. I'm working, co-producing a film about an HIV hospice here in Toledo, Ohio, that lasted 13 years, um, and it became an AIDS resource center. It lasted 13 years um, on, you know, primarily grassroots funding. So I'm, I'm trying to sort of tell that story with a director, Holly Hay. And that's been ongoing for a few years now. But that's a project that I really came to because of meeting people in the HIV community who would talk about this place called David's House over and over again. I'd be like, what the heck is David's House? Well, it turns out it was this hospice that was um, in part founded by nuns, one nun in particular named Sister Elaine. Um, And it was housed in the rectory of an old Catholic church. And it was sustained in its early years by funding from the Catholic Church and funding from drag bar fundraisers. So it's a very interesting juxtaposition between the the people who were involved in keeping this AIDS hospice running for so long. So that's one thing that I'm working on. The other thing that I'm really excited about um, is my, my next book project, which I'm calling Gestational Ableism, which is really looking at how um, pregnant people with disabilities navigate the labor and delivery process. So I am interested in parenting, of course, but I'm also, I'm really interested again, like the HIV book, um, in how we relate to medical systems. Um, and in the United States, we have the worst system of labor and delivery and birth, um, of any other, um, country with the kind of resources that we have, right? We have a terrible maternal health problem among black women. Um, and I think all of this is connected to ideas around ableism and what I'm particularly specifically calling gestational ableism. And so I'm looking at all of the ways that gestational ableism circulates um, in sort of labor and delivery experiences of disabled people, but also in things that are seemingly unrelated. So um, looking at how we frame and think about infertility, for instance, and how that's related to ideas of gestational um, ableism or how we look. I, I wrote a while ago an article about Zika and gestational ableism when I was trying to think through this concept. And now I'm sort of trying to think how um, I might think about COVID in relation to gestational ableism, this idea of the virus um, and viruses that affect developing fetuses, right? And I'm kind of interested in the conversation right now in the States about how we need to have more pregnant women getting vaccinated, that there are low, we have low vaccination rates among pregnant women and sort of the conversations we're having about that. And if we can sort of relate them to some of the things that were circulating back in the days where Zika was um, the largest viral concern, you know, not even 10 years ago. So um, yeah, I'm sort of developing this concept of gestational ableism and hoping um, to get some more traction on that in the next year and sort of get some, some more work on that out there. Hmm. 
those are both very important projects. I'm going to keep an eye out for both your film and your book. And maybe when your book is out, we can have you back on NBN. <laughs> I would love that. That'd be great. Thank you very much again, Ali, for, for being on NBN, for giving me the wonderful opportunity of engaging with your book and for this conversation today. It was an absolute uh, pleasure and an honor. Oh, thank you. You're really kind. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful uh, day ahead. (laughs) Thank you.